Oh. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Double shot. Double shot. Two camera. We don't have a two camera. Squat down, Steve. Right here is my buddy, Steve. He just moved. <laughs> a great musician. He's done music for us uh, here on Heart of the Matter. Cassidy contacted him and said, we need some music, and boom. I mean, he's throwing out Jack White riffs. He throws it out without a, a problem, and he's here. Just moved from where? Colorado. Colorado, where? Uh, so, uh, Salt um, uh, Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs, and uh, you're in Salt Lake to start a new career, be part of the ministry, yep. and uh, teaching music. Absolutely. Fantastic. You also write your own stuff? Yes. You have a band? Are you going to form a band, or do you, uh, are you a solo artist? I've done bands before, but I'm probably just going to see what happens. I guess you kind of remind me of someone like Beck. Beck? Yeah, a little bit like Beck. No. Anyway, uh, Steve, anything you want to share with the audience? Uh, Longtime viewer of the show. Mm -hmm. uh, follow the Lord, and uh, yeah, stick with it. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks for being on. Glad you're here in town with us all. Hey, you know, I want to just tell you a quick story. It happened to me today. On Sunday, some people came from L.A. They came to campus, and they have been flyering and inviting pastors throughout the valley to come to a breakfast or a lunch this morning. Uh, and uh, they invited me to attend. And I never attend. I never get invited. But I got invited. So I thought I'd just show up. And 
it was a bunch of Korean fellows who love the Lord and they, they follow someone who started a movement in Korea. And I can't remember the name of it. It was the gospel something. And they have a young person outreach and they're very motivated and they love the Lord. And it was a wonderful gathering. But of the whole valley that apparently were invited, uh, I was there. A black pastor named Eric, who I know was there. A couple who have a home church were there. And an LDS stake president was there. That was who was there. And it was just remarkable to me that we sat there, you know, and they, and they did their best to put on the thing, and they'd had lunch and everything prepared. But that out of this whole valley, I don't know how many churches are here, but there's a number of them. There were really two, three pastors there and one stake president. Now, there's not a church in this state that's bigger than an LDS stake. LDS stakes are huge. That's like seven wards, and each ward has three to 400 people in it. So you're talking about 2,100-person church that these stake presidents oversee, and this stake president was there. And the lesson I took from it is, you know, we do pretty well if we started behaving that way as believers, and we started showing up, you know, all the pastors come. They're not so busy. They're not busier than a stake president, I'll tell you that right now. And they, they can't show up and show unity. And that's why the LDS are successful in their organization. Because their people take time to get involved. They were getting involved with a Christian outreach ministry from L.A. And the stake president took time to go and sit there. Now, I, of course, I can't stand the, the Mormon uh, doctrine. I can't stand the Mormon church in and of itself. But that should teach something to the churches. We should be uniting and showing up if we want to survive uh, this business of sharing Jesus with people. Got an email, represents a number of things in many ways. It's from Trace. He says, I was born and raised LDS. I went on a mission, got married in the temple. I read the Book of Mormon five times all the way through and listened to it many times also. I always believed it to be true, but since doing some of my own investigation and finding you on YouTube, among other people like Sandra Tanner, Grant Palmer, Lee Baker, uh, and uh, all the others. I no longer attend church. My wife is very active and won't listen to me. What's the best books to prove the problems with the church? I'm truly grateful uh, that people care about the truth. Uh, you know, if you've never been LDS, this part of this email represents one of the most common circumstances that people who leave Mormonism face, uh, at least for a while, they're pretty much alone. And this man, he's involved in a marriage, and I'm assuming he has kids, but his wife won't listen to him. I meet with people honestly, almost weekly, sit down with them, talk, and this is the problem. They come to find the truth, the spouse doesn't know uh, the truth, and there is a divide. It almost breaks up marriages, sometimes it does. And really, I, I'm sorry, but can you see what the religion does to people? It is insidious. And uh, they say we're the only true church on the face of the earth. They get everybody on the bandwagon and they protect their stance by getting all their members to subtly and gently uh, kind of circle the wagons when somebody steps outside of it. And it's really unfortunate. And I'm hoping that that will change. Uh, but it leaves the questioner very alone in this world, typically. 
as they've built their life around the church, they've built their life around going to church with their families, their uh, parents, uh, their siblings, their neighbors, and then they, they stop believing in it. Guess what happens? All those people leave them. They, they won't even really even talk to you, really. Once they know you really don't believe it, they, they won't even talk to you anymore. In fact, he goes on to say uh, something even more difficult. He says, I'm not sure how I can ever accept Jesus into my life again as I feel very hurt by the deception and fraud that Joseph Smith and the church perpetuates. If you are a Baptist and you leave the Baptist denomination for Methodists, it's no big deal. If you are even a Catholic and you leave and become a Presbyterian, that's like, so what? I mean, that's a pretty big denominational jump. But still, it's, I was once a Catholic and I'm now a Presbyterian. People don't really even blink about that. But when you notice that when you leave Mormonism, that you leave Jesus too. And it's just a rarity for people to be in it and then go into a relationship with Jesus. It's very rare, at least statistically speaking, from what I see. And what I really despise about organized religion is that most of them in some way echo these same things. And they do things that make Jesus and a relationship with him less liberating and more confining, less, it's, it's not, the religions aren't helping people like this guy, but even the other ones, they're not helping them be free, they're helping to trap them. And I know it's something I'm always talking about, but I, I met a man uh, through uh, Richard Dutcher, and he has written a book about Mountain Meadows Massacre, which is a fantastic book, but I was able to meet him at a bar the other night, and, uh, with Richard, and he said to me, Mormonism began as a criminal organization, and it continues to be the same. He said Smith was a criminal, Brigham Young was a criminal, and he says the modern religion is the same thing. They are out to get the assets of their people. And when you think about it, I know it sounds like I'm being hard, but that's truly what they do. They want your assets, they want your time, your talents, they want your money, they want your thoughts, they want your individualism, they want, if you, they want your inalienable right to question things. And if they don't get that, they will cut you out even of your own marriage, even out of a relationship with your own children. That is disturbing when that goes down. And so while we've opened up and we've said, look, religion is religion, and all these other things. The Mormon church is really bad in this way. And so we're going to continue to address it as it comes up. Trace continues with one heck of a line. He says, no one will listen to me, my family, my friends. Just for once, I wish someone would ask me why I don't go to church anymore. Isn't that funny? People always think when you leave, everybody will say, why, why? That's not what happens. You experience the shutdown that you cease to exist. That's how, they, that's how they circle the wagons. You cease to exist, and therefore, you become very isolated and lonely. And he wraps it up by saying, well, I guess I feel very lonely. And he finally came to that conclusion writing this email. My bishop wants me to read the Book of Mormon again and pray about it. You know, and that leads us to the final thought that I have on this email, and that is, if you don't agree, it's your fault. If you have a problem and you question Joseph Smith couldn't possibly be wrong, so you are. The Book of Mormon is absolutely true. If you don't believe it, 
you're, you have the problem. You know, Thomas S. Monson is a true and living prophet. Accept him, accept us, or you will be cut off. There's just something sinister about that. It, there just is in my soul. And, you know, there's always a choice in our lives to choose evil, to choose good. Uh, if you want to live the lie of Mormonism because, so that you can feel like you have friends, etc., then you can do it. You always have a choice, though. We're always forced to choose. Are we going to go for the truth or are we going to step back away from it and suffer the consequences? And I would just add to Trace, you know, Jesus was very alone on that cross. And I know we always go to that, but that's how it is. I mean, it's a very lonely road when you step out and say, this is what I believe is true. And then you live it and you actually believe it. And that goes on in the Christian faith too. Don't, don't think I'm just picking on the Mormons. All right, Penn Gillette, he's an ardent atheist of Penn and Teller fame. Uh, he's the big one, not the small one. He said something that I want to talk about tonight. Uh, he said, love and respect all people, hate and destroy all faith. And like any good lie, uh, which is what I believe this is, uh, his words contain some truth. They start off really good. I mean, love and accept all people. Love all people. Let's just talk about that. That sounds really good. Uh, Christians want to love all people. Christians should love all people, right? But then when he says respect all people, that, that starts to, he, that, actually his phrase really deteriorates. The first phrase is good. The first little couple of things. And then the next part is bad. Love all people, okay, we'll take that. Respect all people, mm, that's just, that's just weird. I mean, am I to really respect a child rapist? Am I really to respect people who beat old people to death? I don't, I don't understand that love and respect all people. Now, maybe he's just talking as a human being, respect them. I don't know, but love and respect all people. I think Mr. Gillette stepped outside of his bailiwick of wisdom when he, when he started. He started well, and now he says respect all people. I don't know. But then we come to the second part, which really to me is a downgrade. He says, hate and destroy all faith. Now, I mean, if that's not a, a zealous religious comment, that is a religious statement. That is as zealous as a fundamentalist Muslim to hate and destroy all faith. That is, so, uh, I mean, I'm not going to take the time to even try to show how illogical I find that to be, but I want to talk about it relative to how Christians love. And this is something I've said before, so uh, bear the repeating. We first, Christians say, we first come to know God. You can't love what you don't know. You've got to know him first. How can you love him if you don't know him? So the first thing we seek is to know God. And this is going to play into the order. Next, we choose to love him because we know him. What we know about him tells us to love him. We know he is good. We know he is great. We know he is love. We know all these things. And because we know he loved us so much, he sent his son. We know this about him. We love him. You got that? And then after that, we choose to have faith in him. We know him. We love him. We then have faith in him. We listen to what he says in his word. We read what he says. We hear what the spirit tells us. 
and then we have faith in that. By that order, we then are able to do what Penn Jillette said, and that is love everyone. I would suggest you cannot love everyone until you have that in order. You got to know him first, then you love him, then you choose to believe and trust him, then you're capable of loving. What Gillette says is get rid of faith altogether, destroy it. And I would suggest if you destroy faith, you destroy our ability to love. Let me give you an example. God says, we know God, we love God because we, well, we know of him. And then God says, turn the other cheek. We say, I'm going to believe him because I love him because I know him. And so I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to die to myself. This is true agape love. And I'm not going to retaliate. That is true love that Penn Jillette seems to be promoting. So we have God giving forth his command. If we love him, if we know him, if we have faith in him, we will say, I'll obey that command. What are his commands? Go the extra mile, forgive everybody, turn the other cheek. All of these things God says. If we don't have faith in him, we get rid of faith, as Gillette says. We destroy faith. Then when God says, turn the other cheek, we say, I don't believe that. So therefore, when someone hits me, I'm going to hit them back because I don't believe what he had to say. So therefore, without the faith, I am incapable of loving as God would want me to. And how I love is through the atheistic means of love, which would be, listen, it's really in the end for me. Very, very, very few people, I believe, can selflessly love absent of faith. And when I talk about love, I'm talking the way God wants us to. Not loving our friends because they're great people, but loving our enemies because they're, they're really bad people and we feel for them. You see, that's what God said. God said, love your enemies. He says, Jesus said, look, if you love those who love you, even the publicans and Pharisees do that. So what? You know, so if you say love everybody, you have to tell me by what means you're able to do that. And I have yet to find a human being without God in their life who can consistently die to themselves, die to what God tells them to do, and love others because they choose to, because they know and love him, you strip out faith, we would have one miserable, self-serving world. So Penn Jillette's remarks really, really are without much merit, as, as great of a magician as he is. Uh, we are going to start striking at the root and uh, showing tonight, and I'm very excited about tonight because now we're going to start to talk about what Jesus gave us and what religion has done to it. Tonight, we're going to start off with the first thing on the chart. Can you see that chart, Del? I don't... Hmm. I should have prepared for this, but we're not going to really get into the chart. I just wanted to say we have that chart that we put up on the board three weeks ago. And we're going to start going down the list of what Jesus has given to us. Okay, that's the chart and we'll bring it up and use it in the future. Tonight we're going to begin with the very top left side, him and his victory. The first thing is he's given us the good news. 
the gospel. What is the good news? Now, I'm not going to go all the way through how we got it through the Latin and the German. There's a whole story behind that. But let's take a look at the word through the Greek. The Greek word translated gospel, which is good news also uh, translated, is euangelion. And it was taken from the Greek word euangelizo, which is a compound term. Eu, E-U in the Greek means well and good, well or good, okay? You, and then angelos, you've heard of angels, means a messenger or message. So we have a good or well message. We have a good message. That's all it means, a good message. So from euangelion, we have good news being shared, right? So... Many denominations and religious folk claim to preach the good news, the gospel. But what is it? I want you to think to yourself, what is the good news? The Mormons claim to have a corner on it. They have the gospel, that we share the gospel. But if you sit down and really hear it, beginning to end, the good news is Jesus was sent, God is our Father, and then you got to be baptized. You got to follow Joseph Smith's view of what the gospel was restored. You got to get the priesthood. You got to go to the temple. You got to pay tithes. You got to do all that. That is the gospel. That's how they summarize good news is you have to do all those things. Got that? The Presbyterians take the good news and they filter it through a lens through a man named John Calvin. And what they say is the good news is God sent his son to suffer for a few people. He did not send his son to suffer for most people. This is their view of the good news. And so that only sounds like good news to a few people. How could we call it good news to me if it's bad news for most of the world? And yet that's how the Presbyterians, fundamentalist Presbyterians would talk about it. So the news that is good was, from what I can tell in Scripture, good news that was given to the entire world. It was a worldwide delivery. So what would the good news be to the whole world? Now, we start to throw our caveats in there. We start to throw our exceptions in there. We say, well, it's good news, but I just want to know, if you think about it, we have a Good news, a good message, what is it? The biggest caveat relative to the good news is that it's only good if you receive it. Have you heard that? Have you thought of that? The good news that God has given to the world through his son is only good if you receive it. If you don't, guess what? It turns into bad news real quickly. Talk to an evangelical Hear what they have to say about the good news. Oh, it's great news. It's good news. Glorified for everybody, the whole world. But it turns into really bad news if you don't accept it. Now, this is the standard. God's good news in the world of Christianity. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to receive the good news. But those who don't will burn forever in hell. That's, that's the way it works, okay? Now, I understand that's a pretty good step in the direction of good news. Hey, he sent a message, and it's really good news for everybody, 
But if you don't accept it, and most aren't going to, you're going to burn in hell forever. Now, already we're getting down into this, the lower parts of the chart, into how it's getting all messed up. We have the very first box at the top side that says the good news, the gospel, okay? I want to offer up tonight what I believe the New Testament good news is in the context of their day and in the context of ours. First of all, the good news was first and foremost given to the Jews. They were promised a Messiah, a Savior, someone who would save the nation. That was a promise by God that he would save them. What wonderful news to receive for them. Uh, the material, actual, living, breathing Messiah, God with them, brought the nation of Israel emancipation from bondage and sin. Of course, this news was not received by them. In fact, they killed the messenger. But the good news for Israel was that the Messiah came, did what he said he would do, and listen, the result was all Israel would be saved. That was what God promised them. He keeps his promise, and he did exactly what he said he would through his only begotten son to that nation. Now, that's the God of both the Old and New Testament. What's really, really actually good news is God came through on his promise, and Jesus came, and all Israel, his brethren, were saved because God promised it. This caused Paul to write. I'm going to use Paul's words. Ready? Romans 11, uh, 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins. If he took away their sins, guess what? They are redeemed to God. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. He's talking to Gentile believers in Rome. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. That's his promise. They are mine. I am going to redeem them. Okay? So the question, was all of Israel saved in the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem? Absolutely not. One million plus were wiped out, but they were saved to God. They were saved to God. They just weren't saved for the destruction that was coming their way for having rejected the Messiah. It, there was a, a, not a bad news, but there was a lesser good news for them. God says, I've sent my son. He's done the work. He paid for your sins. All of Israel shall be saved. But let me tell you something. There's something coming around the pike and you can be saved from that too. I can save your very life in addition to your souls after this life, but you got to receive me. So I'm going to send out apostles into Judea and they're going to preach. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Because if you don't, you are going to wind up on the short, the bad end of a sword. And they did. But were they saved? Absolutely. Jesus did his part. He was their Messiah. God promised Israel he would save them. And Paul just told us all Israel will be saved. Okay, so 
That was the good news that Jesus' chosen apostles took out and they kept warning them, it's coming, now's the time, listen. And they were greatly frustrated, most wouldn't. They have the festival. All the Jews are commanded to come to the festival there in, in Jerusalem. It's packed with people. And that's when the, the uh, iron falls and, and the Romans destroy them. Destroy them physically. They were a material nation. And they were destroyed materially. But God saved them to himself. We note that the good news to the children of Israel had a caveat. They would suffer loss if they didn't receive the Messiah in this life. They had a chance. They had 40 years after the Messiah came and was crucified for a full generation to receive him. And if they didn't, they would be wiped out and they were. But that was God's promise to them. In the long run, the good news was still good news to the house of Israel. But the application is over and done. Today, since that wipeout, since the genealogies, the temple, everything's wiped out of their uh, age. Since that time, there's no difference between male or female, Jew or Greek. In fact, they say, in fact, there's some really good evidence that those who call themselves Jews, one, they don't have any genealogy to prove it. Two, they probably came from other races and aren't even Jews when we look at it. So this is not anti-Semitic at all. I'm just saying that now Jews and Greeks are one and the same in Christ. But the good news, first through Peter to uh, Cornelius and then through Paul, has been extended out to all the world. Every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. What is it? What's the good news to us? Same question, Right? Is it that God through Jesus has saved some? Did Jesus only, his, his uh, salvific work only apply and his shed blood only take care of the sins of some 2,000 years ago? That he saved my neighbor, but elected not to save me? If that's the case, then that system makes me hate God. I hate him for choosing my neighbor, but not choosing me, you see. So, or is it that God has saved all, but only has he saved them through his son's shed blood, only is that good news applicable if they do everything their respective bishop, prophet, pastor tells them they must do. So perhaps we have missed the mark on defining the good news to us, folks, and this is what I want you to try to consider. Wouldn't what would make the victory of Christ really, really, truly good news? You think about that. That's what we want to share with people. What is truly good news? Not some messed up version of it. First of all, it would be really good news if, Jew, if Jesus did it all, wouldn't it? That would be really good news, huh? Where we could say... He did it all. A-L-L for A-L-L. That's fantastic news that I could share with everybody all day long, right? But when we start throwing in those little exceptions, it starts to get a little muddy and we start to get such not good news. That's good news to me. Didn't Isaiah say, surely he has borne our griefs and stricken and carried our sorrows? 
We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and within his wounds we are healed. Now that was certainly to the Jews, but since Peter took the gospel to Cornelius, and since Paul was assigned by Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, I would say it applies to us as well. Now, Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, while we had not believed, while we were in sin, or however you want to say it, while we were in that state, that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's everything. And that's why we are unbelievers. That's good news. We talk to somebody who says, I hate God. I don't believe in him at all. Well, that's too bad, man. Jesus saved you. Did you know that? No, he did. He, he gave his life for you. He paid for your sin. You don't even have any sin anymore. What? Yeah. That's, isn't that good news? That's a, that's a way to share it. We don't share that. We say, ah, no, he didn't until you do this. And then somehow what he did on that cross works to your favor and your sins are gone away at that moment. No, he did it. It's done. He did it while we were sinners and we were reconciled to God while we were still sinners. Isn't that good news? Now listen to what the churches tell you. They mess it up. Or they say, well, the follow-up is now you've got to, and that's not good news either. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Eight verses later in Romans 5.18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. All men. That's good news. You're justified before God because of what Christ did. All of you justified. No, 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 no. They got to accept it first. No, 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 they don't. They don't have to accept it first. Now I'm going to get to it. Don't get freaked out. I know what faith in him means. I understand how that applies. But just stay with me. This is what scripture's saying. All right, let's go on to another passage. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Didn't he become our righteousness too? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's him doing everything. He did everything. He made us righteous by God, by and through his life. So it's not even up to us to be righteous after we have believed, it is, it's not up to us to be righteous at all. Christ did it. Now, I know this is radical to some. Didn't he reconcile all things? Colossians 1.20 says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in, uh, in heaven. Didn't he defeat the devil? He defeated the devil. We're going to get to the devil and how he's used. He's gone. Satan over. It says in Hebrews 2.14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same, he took on flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless 
him who had the power of death, that is the devil, powerless, he rendered him. That's doing everything. So the good news is he's come, he saved the world. He saved you in your sins. He's made you righteous before God. He wiped out Satan. He wiped out the devil. He's done everything. Didn't he do this for the whole world? First John 2, 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I don't know how to say it any differently. The guy next door who doesn't have anything to do with God or Jesus, Jesus did it for him. That's good news. And so we approach people in a different way now. We don't say, listen, you know, you're going to go to hell and burn there forever. That's my good news for you. <laughs> that son of yours who committed suicide back in 72, yeah, he's in hell. He's in hell because he didn't receive what Jesus had done, and so he's in hell. Jesus didn't do everything for him. He just did enough, and now, no, you got it wrong. We've got it wrong. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, listen, read it. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Listen, especially those that believe. Oh, people hate that one. Oh, that one's frightening. What do you mean especially? It means everybody. But especially you who are sons and daughters. That's a different group. Sons and daughters here in this world who choose to follow him by faith. That's a different category. We're not talking about good news here. We're talking about fantastic, unbelievable plans God has for those who trust in him here. We're not talking about that. But when it comes to the good news, we need a shift that goes with what scripture says. And that is he did it, he did all of it, he did it perfectly, it was for all men, especially those who believe. When we can share that as the good news, we will have more people believe it. When we can say Jesus did it for your son who killed himself in 1972, we will have people who start to say, that's something I, I can really understand. That's what God can do. He can do it, can't he? Now, so wouldn't the good news be good news to everybody? including those who didn't believe. If he did it for all of us and on all of our behalf, I think it would. So it was to the Jews, he came to save. The good news is good news to all of us. Every single person who has ever lived, it's good news. Lived, died, accepting it or not, it's good news. Now, um, remember, Jesus came and he saved all of Israel to God. But he certainly didn't save them from getting wiped out, did he? They had to meet God's wrath for what they did. And they suffered loss in Jerusalem when it was destroyed. Well, the same thing is true for the good news and what Jesus has done for the world. That those who believe in him now, they will escape loss after this life. That's why we share this good news with people so that while they are here, they can embrace him by faith and they can walk with him and receive that wonderful relationship here and there. 
But when people don't accept the good news, that is theirs to have, they will, like the Jews who wouldn't accept the good news to them, suffer loss, just like they did to, in Jerusalem. Except the afterlife loss uh, here, we don't know what it means. But we do know that we will reap what we sow. And if you reap, if you, excuse me, if you sow to the flesh and you live to the flesh, you will reap to the flesh. And if you sow to the spirit, you will reap after this life to the spirit. Now, afterlife is all about spirit. It's not about flesh. So the reaping that is done after this life is all spiritual. And if all you've done is sown in the flesh and material, you're going to suffer extreme loss there. You'll have built a mansion here on earth to when you die, you're going to say, I have nothing. There's nothing remaining because I've, I have no spiritual side to me. So while the good news is certainly good news to you, Jesus has saved in the sense, all men in the sense saved to God. Somehow it won't keep people from afterlife loss any more than it kept the Jews who were God's covenant people from being wiped out. Do you see that parallel? Next week, we're going to go and we're going to see then how the churches and how the religions have taken this message and they have twisted many of the scriptures that we use uh, tonight. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Listen, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That word perish if you look at contextually through scripture, does not mean annihilated. All it means is the way the Jews perished in uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. They did suffer loss. When you perish in God's uh, purview, you suffer loss because you chose not to receive the good news by faith when it was given to you. Of course, God's just and he knows all things and merciful. He'll balance all that out if you never had the opportunity, all that stuff. But bottom line, the good news is for the whole world and the, good the whole world will be recipients of it. But do you want to suffer loss as a result of rejecting it here because you built your empire on things of the flesh? We'll continue on next week. We're going to open up the phone lines. We have Don from Illinois. We'll see him. But we're going to come back after this message. Oh. Alathia Ministries has stridently tried to make financial support a non-event. It's been a difficult balancing act, refusing to harp on our monetary state while keeping the mission alive. Looking to the apostolic church, Paul thought it perfectly just to live off the carnal things of the church in exchange for providing them spiritual things. So he applied his skills as a tent maker so as to never be wrongly charged by those he was there to feed. From a very young age, Sean has been engaged in one form of artistic expression or another. Acrylic keychains, sketches, ceramics, cartoons. Just as Paul was a tent maker, Sean has recently decided to turn his form of artistry, deconstructing acrylic panels, as a means to subsidize the work of the ministry. So here's the deal. We are offering anyone who is interested 
an original, one-of-a-kind, signed, numbered, and authenticated piece of art for a minimum, mostly tax-deductible donation. This, of course, is not for everyone. In fact, it's not for most people, as the minimum donation is high. But we are certain that these original works will make a tremendous addition to anyone's collection, while your donation will greatly help the continuation of this ministry. If you have the discretionary income and the inclination, please contact us. As always, we are grateful. Always bugs me to mix the carnal with the spiritual, but you know, you just got to do it. We're doing what we can, and we figure this is going to be one of the better ways for people who are in that position. And again, I apologize. I uh, wish we could do the art for everybody and hand it out freely. Would if we could, can't, so we won't. And uh, those of you who are interested in that, let us know. Dawn from Illinois. Dawn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. Hi. Yeah, I was wanting to commend you on this work that you're doing on that Melchizedek. That, that, that's some good uh, video I've seen. I studied on that Melchizedek. So the first time he's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth. That's where a lot of people miss that. He brought forth bread and wine. He brought forth the body of Jesus Christ. Oh. Jesus Christ stated in John 8, 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus told them that he was Melchizedek. Ooh, Jesus. I love that. Pardon? I love that. Melchizedek was Jesus pre-incarnate. Most people loses it on that five-letter word, as they do a lot of times whenever they study Scripture. Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine. Matthew twenty six twenty six, and as they were eating, Jesus broke bread and blessed it and break break it and said, Give it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then in Luke twenty two, verse nineteen, and he took bread and gave them and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty four. When he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat this, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. Mark 26, verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament. See, that's the old blood covenant and the new blood covenant. He says, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. He, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. See, this, this, this wasn't nothing to do with any Aaron priesthood order. No. Whenever it says 
says that Jesus is the high priest after the order. There again, there's a little five-letter word that most will, will completely miss it. When Jesus became the high priest after the order, that's just in the order that they came in, brother. That's all. It's like when you step out of the shower and you put your underclothes on and you put your clothes on. You understand? It's just in that order. You understand? Yep. That's the order that they came in. Melchizedek was Jesus pre-incarnate. Jesus told him he was Melchizedek. Yep. And Yeah, in John 8, 56, it's as plain as the nose is on your face. Amen or old me. You, uh, you bring up great points, Don. Really appreciate your insights. Keep going. I, I love the message because it's absolutely clear to me as well, especially when it says that Melchizedek uh, had no father or mother uh, uh, or whatever. I can't even remember the quote now. It's been so while. But... Right. He had no beginning of days and no end of That's days. That's right. The Alpha and the Omega. That's right. God, yeah, amen to that. That solves a lot of problems, especially in the LDS realm. Thank you so yeah, much, Don. You, oh, go ahead. Whenever you, you read further, see, it's so very important that you understand that Melchizedek was Jesus pre-incarnate. Whenever you read that Jesus was in this one area prior to them taking him into custody, and he was sweating like large droplets of blood, and an angel came to comfort him. That angel came to get the blood, brother. He came to get the blood prior to Jesus becoming sin, prior to him becoming blemished. They had to get that blood from an unblemished lamb. Amen. Amen. Love you, brother. Thank, we got some other calls. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a good evening. Thanks, Don. Don's a preacher through and through. Mark asked, do you have a message for the people of Manchester, UK? You know, um, of course, a tragedy. Of course, horrible. Of course, sorrow and loss. Uh, but, you know, right around the corner, we have people who are suffering loss in all different ways. And uh, Manchester, UK is just one uh, blip on the radar of pain and suffering that's going on all over the world right now. And uh, the solution to it uh, in the face of such suffering is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the solace and, and salve that he gives to people who are mourning. And it's, so it's a miserable thing to watch when something happens like that, but it's going on all the time, everywhere. And I think that there's a solution that we're kind of missing, and that would be him. Uh, we have two phone lines ringing. Wendy? You're, Wendy? Let go of that man. Troy on line two from Canada. Troy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Can I ask a question now? Of course. Okay, um, so I've been watching a lot of cold case Christianity by a guy by the name of Jay Warner Wallace. Okay. And he, men he mentions um, that his family, most, almost all of his family are Mormons, and he came out of it. And uh, when he came out of it, you know, he became a Christian. And he's, he, on several of his videos, he keeps saying always that if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you're not a then you're not a Christian. And I've heard um, Sean say sometimes that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. So how does that problem get resolved? And I could repeat the uh, the Athanasian Creed of the fourth century, but you probably know what it is already. So yeah, that's my question. How do you hey. resolve that conflict where one came out of Mormonism believes if you don't believe the Trinity, you're going to hell, and then Sean says something else about he doesn't really believe the Trinity. Yeah, because that's the question. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and the, the only way I'll, I can answer it is this way. Um, on the side of the road in August of, 2000, of 1997, I was born again and my life changed and I knew I was saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I did not believe in the Trinity then. And I was saved. So anyone who says you have to believe this in order to be saved, especially a man-made term like Trinity, I, I, just, I just have a real difficult time accepting that. If they want to say that, I'll accept them as my brother. If they want to teach that, I'll love them. But I have a hard time believing that, that is, we, ha we have to put everybody into a box that says you have to accept this creed that was developed by men 385 years after Jesus walked the earth and Jesus didn't teach it in my estimation. I have a real problem with that when it's said. However, I do believe everybody has the right to teach what they want and how they see it. And I know we have people who follow campus who are Trinitarians, who don't appreciate my views on it. But these are my specific views. And I'll go before God. And I will claim before God, unless he shows me the minute I see him, you're an idiot, McCraney. But I'll claim before I didn't accept the Trinity, God, and, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Does that help? Yeah. We, I just think there's evidence for it. I know you do, and most people do. Look, with all the thousands of years of history and Christianity and scholars uh, going through like they have, I'm sure there's more evidence for it than, than I'm letting on. Uh, but to me, I, I have a lot of problems with different things with it, and it's me personally. And I just want the okay, free... Let's I want make the it simple then. When you come to the great white throne, if Jesus says the, tr the Trinity is true, you'll accept it. Oh, absolutely. And you'll get into heaven. Well, if that's the option, then maybe when Mormons get there, they'll get into heaven, and then when Muslims get there, they'll get into heaven, and it just—that's well, easy to disprove because we're works-based. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Trinity, the three yeah. persons of the Godhead who are completely distinct and separate. Yeah. Co-equal, co-eternal, one substance. Yeah. One being. Yeah, we, you, and I could talk for quite a while on this, and uh, I, I accept your version of who God is. I just don't accept that version. I, I believe there is one so can God. Can you explain to people exactly your version of it r real quick? Not quick, no. Uh, we tried well, that, we tried that before. Is that you can try to describe it? Well, I tell you what. So uh, that people know the difference. I think everybody's familiar with the Trinity, so you just sort of say your position. I don't think anyone's familiar with the Trinity to begin with. I don't think anyone can articulate it. I'm familiar with it. I think it makes completely sense. Jesus is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, yet they're all uncreated. I, I, uh, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is uh, a separate, distinct, has his own personality. I don't believe that uh, Jesus is a little child to the Father in a pre-existent state where long gray hair... No, no, the three persons of the Godhead, the three persons of the Godhead before time and space. You don't say Father, Son, and Spirit before time and space. You just simply say the three persons of the Godhead before. Okay, but are they distinct space. persons as distinct as you and I and my wife are distinct? Well, no, distinct in terms of... No, they are distinct. They are as distinct as you and I and my wife are distinct. If you look at James White, no, James White clearly articulates... Because you're, you're, a, you're a being, I'm a being, God's a being in his three persons. God's a being, and well, I'm a, I'm a being in my three persons of father, son, and brother, right? Uh, sure. 
Okay, so if you want to see it that way, I can see it that way. I believe Jesus was God in the flesh, so don't get that wrong. I just don't believe that there are three distinct persons that make up one God. I don't believe that. I never will believe it until God shows me otherwise. I don't believe I that. The, I think the term persons is the problem. The persons I didn't come up with it. The creeds came up with persons. Actual, like we use in human terms, we're using it as a supernatural term. Because we know the Father always existed, we know the Son always existed, and we know the Spirit always existed. We just say each are... No, so we'll talk about this again, but let me just ask you. So uh, does the does the father, the son and the Holy Spirit have distinct and separate wills? Yes, they do. Forget it, brother. That is miraculous, baby. That is miraculous to me. I believe in one God and I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I believe the Holy Spirit is God's spirit. I believe there is one God, and I believe that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll open up the show with why I believe that, and you can call back. We're out of time. We've got to go to Ryan. Thanks so much. God bless you, my brother. Let's go to Ryan in West Virginia on line one. Ryan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you, man? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Sean, I have just one question. I'm still not understanding saving by grace and saved by work. I don't know, maybe because of my LDS activity or maybe because of my Roman Catholic background. Like, I'm still confused. Like, uh, if we are saved by grace, and sometimes in the scripture I have seen, like, it's written, like, uh, you should be, you'll be rewarded according to your work. So just confused. Well, I, I think it might help to understand that we're, remember, saved, saved, that means to God or and, and or from sin and death and bondage and all that, saved is completely by grace. But we are saved to do good works. The, the good works will follow those who have been saved. Will. Don't have to. They will. So we get confused when we start mixing them. When you start thinking that you do good, you will be saved because you've done good. That is not true. We are saved by grace through faith. We believe that God's Son did it all. We are saved from ourselves, from our sin to God. That is a done-for thing. But then there is Scripture constantly is talking about your fruit. What you will do once you have been saved and by, your, by God's grace through your faith, and once you have been saved by God's grace through your faith, you will become a vessel, slowly or quickly, it's up to God, that will begin to bear fruit. And that is the relationship between grace and works in the New Testament. Okay, like since I am saved, so that will, uh, that will prompt me to do good works, Be- not the other way around. Right. That's what Be- you're saying? Right. It's not... It's not it's the horse before the cart is the horse is grace and it's pulling a, a cart full of fruit. But what many religions do is they say, you got to do good. And so you have that horse called grace pushing a cart full of fruit. And that's not the order. You got to have the horse before the cart. Okay. Uh, do you have any idea? Matthew 16, I think, verse 27, it said like... Uh, he will reward every man according to his work. Yeah. I mean, what was, the, what was the context on that? Do you know? You know, the context is correct. And if you, I mean, there are far more 
you know, quantitatively speaking, there are far more passages that talk about our works and our fruits and our and, and following God and doing mm -hmm. and being far more in the New Testament than there are about grace. So let's just be clear. But the problem is, is because of that, many people read those and they think, oh, I got to do it. But that's not the New Testament order as Paul clearly proves in Ephesians and Romans. But here's the thing. Um, we are not, we are judged by our works in terms of how much did we die to ourselves, how much did we love as believers, and we will be rewarded accordingly with different crowns. Did you die? Okay. Yeah, did you die to your, and, but it has nothing to do with salvation. It's like, okay. yeah, it's like going to a corporate party and being invited to into the building of the corporate party, that's being saved. And then getting there and then having the president of the corporation reward you for all the corporate works you've done before all your peers. That's the way works would, would work. But the okay. salvation is yeah. getting into the party in the first place. Okay, so that means uh, if you go to the party, I mean, you are admitted to the going to the party. But on the party, which uh, like bronze medal, gold medal, silver, which you're going to get, right. it depends on that one. But you're saved by the grace, by the by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's, That's right. And guess what those bronze, gold, and silver medals are based on? They are all, contextually speaking, my brother Ryan, they are all based on your love. On your love. love. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Sean. Bye. Take Thank care. you. Bye. I like how he ended that. <laughs> all right, you guys, join us next week. We're going to continue to talk next week about the gospel, the good news. And then we're going to move on after that and start talking about how what Christ gave us next is an unburdening of cares and a, a taking off the cares of this world where the religions start adding them back on. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel 